0: Today's show is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and traces from technologies like Istio, AppMesh, and Envoy. Plus, Datadog's service map automatically plots out the dependencies in your microservices architectures for seamless, context-rich troubleshooting. With rich visualizations, algorithmic alerting, and more than 250 vendor-supported integrations, Datadog allows you to monitor your distributed applications in real time. Start a free 14-day trial today by visiting datadog.com cloudcast. And Datadog will send you a great free t shirt. That's datadog.com slash cloudcast.
1: Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world.
0: Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody is doing well. We are wrapping up January of 2021 and uh, beginning to look ahead to the, the later part of the. Uh, I guess winter is almost over. We're getting closer to spring. So hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody's kind of kind of getting back into the swing of uh, of work and so forth in 2021. A lot of uh, earnings announcements this week for our cloud news of the week. So we're going to kind of hit on that. We are kind of in the first of typically a two-week kind of cloud earning announcements. Uh, A couple of companies announce uh, a week early and then a couple of other companies announce later. So let's go ahead and jump right into that. Microsoft announced their Q2 earnings. um, And from a cloud perspective, Azure was up about 50%. Uh, Microsoft as a whole was up uh, 17% uh, for the quarter. They had been up uh, 12% uh, previously a quarter before that. So uh, continuing to see uh, growth from Microsoft, but the Azure business, which obviously includes, um, you know, they don't break it out per se. Uh, it's what they call intelligent cloud. It's still the one that's not explicitly broken out, uh, but up 50% inclusive of things like LinkedIn and GitHub and Office 365 and those sorts of things. So Azure continues to, uh, to continue to grow very much on a about a $14 billion quarter for that uh, area. So about 58, I think, $60 billion uh, cloud business. Uh, IBM announced their Q4 earnings. Uh, they were right around $20 billion. Uh, The IBM number was down about 6% uh, year over year, but the Red Hat business was Up 19%. um, So the Red Hat business, uh, now about a $5 billion business within IBM. Uh, Just to put that in perspective, when I joined uh, Red Hat about five years ago, we were just around a $3 billion business. So, uh, you know, up almost nearly 100% in five years. So that uh, is the healthy part of the IBM business. Intel announced their Q4 earnings. Um, they were up eight uh, percent, sort of for the year. So year over year, they announced not only their Q4 earnings but the the end of 2020 earnings. So up eight uh, percent year over year, they finished around 77 billion uh, for the year. So interesting that uh, you know on what was you know sort of five years of, of growth for the previous CEO. Uh, they are swapping out CEOs. Pat Gelsinger will be starting in February. So um, Intel is still generating a ton of cash, although they're, you know, obviously going through some some big, big transitions in the industry around what ARM's doing and whether they'll continue to be um, you know manufacturers themselves or they'll start to, you know, use contract manufacturers. So Intel will be an interesting hardware story in 2021 and beyond. Those were sort of the three big earnings announcements uh, for the companies that uh, are involved with the cloud. So you know we're seeing um, some obviously some healthy growth across different sectors. Uh, in this case, both with uh, with with Azure, with with Red Hat, uh, and then Intel, obviously you know still still growing and, and going through some transitions. A couple of other things we thought were interesting this week, uh, not around announcements, but kind of around some of the open source things. Um, Elasticsearch announced that they are making a change to their license for both Elasticsearch—I'm sorry, Elastic made the announcement—making a change for Elasticsearch and Kibana. They are adopting the uh, licensing model that that Mongo had created. I forget the name of it off the top of my head. But basically it sort of says uh, if you're using this software— as a cloud service, you not only have to open source uh, the, how you're using it, so sort of give back any changes you make, but you have to open source the code that you use to run the service. And obviously, uh, you know people like AWS and others are not going to open source how their cloud runs. So, in response, Amazon created a fork of Elasticsearch, uh, so the sort of Amazon fork of Elasticsearch. So it's going to be interesting to sort of watch how those things transition. Uh, we saw a similar thing happen with MongoDB. Uh, MongoDB um, tends to be Doing very very well with their Atlas product. Um, the MongoDB stock is up uh, about 100% over the last year. In fact, Elastic stock is up about 100% over the last year as well. So, very very interesting to see. Um, you know, Elastic has had a little more direct competition with Amazon, although both them and, and Mongo have as well. But interesting to see that uh, Amazon has created a, a distinct fork of, of Elasticsearch for the open source community. So, be interesting to see how that sort of plays out. And then finally, um, the folks at OSS Capital. So, um, uh, you know, some of the folks that have been have been looking at that space. Um, it's interesting. They're going to launch an ETF, uh, an exchange traded fund, uh, with in conjunction with Nasdaq, of open source companies in the summer of 2021. So we saw that announced. Um, there's a link in the show notes. Um, so sort of if you you know are interested in investing in the open source companies that uh, that you know and love, and you want to buy an index as opposed to the individual companies. Uh, There will apparently be an ETF uh, that OSS Capital and NASDAQ will be rolling out in the summer of 2021. So... Lots of interesting things going on there, lots of sort of money discussion here in this week's Cloud News of the Week. Um, we are going to not talk about money in the interview coming up. We're actually going to talk about transformation. So whether we talk about that as digital transformation, cultural transformation, kind of what it means to sort of embrace, uh, you know, sort of a software culture, a culture of learning. I'm very excited to do that with some very, very good friends of the show right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by Okta. In these challenging times, we're all looking for simplicity, something that just works the last thing you want to do is spend time building authentication for your new curbside pickup app. Because if you're spending time building your own authentication systems, it's time spent not making your customers happy. This is where Okta makes it simple. Okta's cloud-based authentication services are easy to set up, and they already integrate with the tools and applications you use today. Okta is trusted by companies like HPE, Splunk, CarMax, GitLab, and Cengage, plus many, many more. To take the hassle out of your authentication needs, visit okta.com cloud. And learn how to get started today. That's OKTA.com slash cloud. Today's show is sponsored by BMC. And BMC wants to know, is your business on its A-game? The A-game is when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at BMC.com slash A-game. That's bmc.com slash a game. And we're back, and hopefully, everybody has been enjoying the uh, look ahead shows that we're starting to do here in January. Always some of our most popular shows. Like we said, you know, we try and take a, a fairly big topic that we know a lot of people are very interested in, uh, something that's, uh, you know, not going to necessarily uh, get solved overnight but something that uh, you know we think will be you know something that you'll be talking about throughout the year one way or the other whether it's from the technology side or you know evolving your skills and so forth and Today we're going to talk about transformation, and we may end up calling it transformation. We may end up calling it digital transformation, um, but we all sort of know what it is. It's it's you know the idea that your business is where it is today, and when you look at the market, you look at your competitors, you look at how you do things, um, you realize you're going to have to do it differently to be successful. And so today, very excited to have two folks that are really kind of experts at this and, and folks that uh, I've been lucky enough to to listen to for a long time. So I'm going to introduce both of them and then I'm going to let them kind of give some background. So first off, Andrew Clay Schaefer. Uh, Andrew, why don't you give folks a little bit, if they haven't heard your voice, a uh, quick introduction and a little bit of your background.
1: Uh, thanks, Brian, for having us. My background before I, I came to Red Hat, I've been at Red Hat just over a year now. Uh, I started out in this sort of DevOps um, soup as a, as a co-founder puppet, been working on you know startups before that, but really got into this sort of marriage of Dev and Ops and all these other things that come out of that. Spent all that time there. Then was uh, working on some OpenStack startup for a bit. They got sold EMC. Then ended up spending five years on a very similar thing. I won't I won't say the name of the oh, company. It's okay. It's okay. Oh well, well I worked for Pivotal for five years, which yeah. is you know we had some adventures. We built some things. There, there's a bunch of Narratives that kind of come together, and then I got a unique opportunity, you know, really, really conversations with Jim Whitehurst and OpenOrg and some of the unique uh, cultural aspects of Red Hat were really compelling to come over here and and go to try do something uh, special with the the Red Hat brand around bringing together the technology and the and the culture and process to do um, to, to just deliver better software outcomes. That's really been the focus of. I'd say the last decade of my career is is helping people put together, you know, better tools and better process. So it's the marriage of technology and and, and people and skills to to deliver the outcomes that drive their business.
0: Very cool. And our other other guest today is uh, somebody who's been on the show. It's been a long time though, John Willis. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Give folks a little bit of your background because it's, it's uh, somewhat similar to Andrew's in that it's, you know, it's, it's very deep, it's very diverse and uh, it's, it's head on a lot of topics we've covered over the last 10 years.
2: Yeah. I'd forgotten about it. I go back. I'd forgotten all about the, the, the sort of the early shows there. Um, anyway. Yeah. No. Um, you, know, it's, you know, me and Andrew have been sort of banging heads as friends and, and, and debating for many years and it's just a sort of a brilliant friendship and working partnership. Um, I've been doing this 40 years, a little, I guess now it's a little more than 40 years, but um But, you know, um, the sort of the the biggest thing that happened to me is like you sort of prior to the DevOps movement, go look at my LinkedIn page. But um, but really was, um, you know, sort of the start of the DevOps movement, met Andrew very early on at Puppet, you know, and uh, begged Luke and East for a job for like two years and he wouldn't give me a job. (laughs) Kept telling me he didn't know what I could do there Um, and then met Adam Jacob at Chef and, and sort of, you know, had that sort of ride over at Chef and, and done a, a few startups uh, um, and then um, ran into uh, the Docker folk and so, uh, sold a company to Docker, spent some time at Docker. And and then, you know, so about a little over a year ago, Andrew was putting together a team with Kevin Bear and Jay Bloom and, and Andrew, which I, you know, I think these guys are the smartest people I know. And uh, he invited me to this Red Hat party and it's been a blast. Um, and the only other part is I, I do a lot of sort of theory of the industry. I've, I've written a couple of books, the DevOps Handbook, probably the most notable. But Beyond the Phoenix Project with Gene Kim, and a fair amount of publications. So, yeah, that's why I'm botch galoop.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and <clears throat> I would be I would be incredibly surprised if uh, at least 99 percent of the audience doesn't uh, doesn't know of you guys. Although maybe they haven't heard you on this podcast before. So excited to have you both on. Um, let Let's start. I, I guess with a with a real big uh, kind of area. So you guys both were. Have become really well known in the DevOps space, you sort of invented it uh, to a to a large extent. That was all about you know realizing that you know we 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 don't necessarily build software you know a decade ago fifteen years ago in a way that was going to allow us to move fast and make changes. Those fundamental things are are still in the conversations we have with like when we talk about transformation and digital transformation. We've now just sort of elevated the conversation to say you know being good at software better software is, is going to be really important to your business. It's not just a technology problem. I, you know, as, as you guys get a chance, you, you get a chance to talk to both, you know, kind of hardcore technicians, but also some, some pretty high-level executives. Like, where is that conversation these days as, as you talk to, uh, let's say, you know, an executive of a Fortune 500 company today? Like, how do they, you know, how do they frame up that transformation conversation? And then how do you sort of sit on the other side of the table and help them figure out how to move forward? Like, how, how do you help them think about it?
1: Let, let me take a quick swing. So one, one of the things I tell people, you know, and sometimes people say things like, oh, you know, you invented DevOps or, you know, these, this group of people invented DevOps. I, I don't I don't think that. I don't think that way. I think what, what happened was I was in a very pr- privileged position to watch a bunch of these patterns emerge, but the patterns were already there, right? And, and the, I put this in, some of my presentations very explicitly that if you, there's a pretty famous uh, Werner Vogels interview where he's talking about, if you build it, you run it. That interview is from 2006. DevOps is not a word until 2009. So there's sort of the primordial um, emergent practice that's coming from the Darwinian pressure to deliver and build these services. I think it's also worth noting that part of this transition, and this is how it kind of connects back into Agile and some of these other buzzwords, is that software, we, we keep talking about software and not the world, but the reality is, is actually more on some level about the infrastructure that enables some of the software. There's been software for decades before the, the internet enabled these experiences that we are starting to take for granted, and without that infrastructure, without that kind of connectivity and the computing power that we all get to carry in our pockets, none of this would have been possible. So it's really the the confluence of all these things that elevates operations. So so in the you know, beginning of the agile manifesto, my background was as a software developer before I started getting to more of the automation stuff. It, it, in the in the beginning, software was shipped on physical media, shipped on CDs. And and Ops in that context was, you know, only really worried about keeping the the workstations and maybe the mail servers or whatever running, but you just didn't have the same kind of pressure to deliver reliability, scalability, flexibility that we take for granted more and more. Or or I I think another thing to kind of come back to answer the question, and then I'll I'll hand it back to um, John to to make comments, is that in, in our enterprise context, we have individuals who experience those digital realities every single day. It's not like they don't have a cell phone. It's not like they don't have a Gmail, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, right. you know, TikTok, whatever the, the cool kids are using these days. They 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 are they're immersed in that world all day, every day. And then they end up in their kind of enterprise IT context, and they're dealing with systems that are Byzantine, um, in some cases, maybe even seem like they're designed to be. Um, actually hostile to human beings, right? And so, so kind of finding, finding that balance where the cognitive dissonance about what we know is possible as, it, as individuals because we experience it constantly every single day and what we are delivering to our own organizations and to our customers is where I think there's these huge opportunities. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you go back to sorry,
2: Andrew's point, there's like this beautiful shoulder of giants. Andrew and I will often be introduced as the creative of DevOps, and like, all right, calm down, everybody. You know, I mean, we were we were privileged to be in incredible places. You know, I I was in Ghent, at, you know, by accident for the first DevOps day, right? You know, eleven years ago. But you know, I, I love to point out most people remember this when in presentations over the last ten years, there's this canonical picture of like this sort of pipeline of green, green, red, green, 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 red. It's like this, like the sort of end um, on way of showing continuous delivery. Well, that slide, if you go to Wikipedia, was actually done in a 2006 Agile presentation by Jez Humble, Dan North and Chris Reed, right? <laughs> like in 2006. And you will see that slide in a presentation sometime this year, you know, and people go, ooh, look at that. So, uh, so the point is, there's a lot of prior art, you know, and and I won't even get into all the sort of lean that we realized that we really sort of are doing lean. But I think sort of moving forward, and again, you know, usually Andrew says these things way better than I do, and so I'll just take a quote from Andrew. Is Andrew one of my favorite all-time quotes in? sort of the DevOps space or if we call it digital or digital transformation or if we call it chicken soup, I don't care. Um, the the point that it, Andrew has this quote, it says you're either building a learning organization or you're losing to somebody who is. And I think that says it all. To me, that's the sort of stake in the ground about, I mean, that's what lean, that's what Toyota did. That's what, you know, sort of successful organizations that understand this, they get that correct. And what that means is a whole Opportunity to learn what that means, but I, I think you know. In answer to your question to me, that's the stake in the ground.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, let me- and, and we see this we, we see this day to day. And and just to add one one quick point to what John has said is, you go into some of these enterprises and you you look at what they're doing, you know, from a technology perspective and from a process perspective, and you can almost tell what year they stopped learning. It's mm-hmm. like you know, <laughs> yeah. capsule and is the stack that was you know a good idea this year it seemed like a good idea at
2: the time or it's a it's a it's a change in management really right too right i think that, that that's beautiful like from that synergy of looking at it right like you can actually see oh look a new cio came in and yeah. all this stuff that anyway so yeah yeah so, uh,
0: that, so, that's the sedimentary layers of, of yeah that's right yeah. exactly yeah, yeah 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 so let me like so let me follow up on that so so you so forget about the other words, right? So we, obviously we, we've we've evolved over time. You start talking to somebody, whether you're I don't know, you're in an event or you're in an actual meeting or whatever it is, and and you're trying to gauge from them like where are you in you know like are you a learning organization because it's probably it's not a binary thing necessarily, right? Like yeah, there's plenty of organizations that you feel like they're stuck in the mud, but like. It, you know are there questions you ask people where you kind of get a feel for like okay you you guys still have some amount of learning going on or you have the i don't know you have the right mindset that you know if we help you a little bit like we can accelerate your learning like how how do you understand if somebody's you know Learning really learning yeah. or not. Like how let does me that work a, out? How do you think
2: about it? Yeah, that? let me take a quick crack on it and then I'll let Andrew, I'll let Andrew expand on it. I, I think there there are telltale signs, right? And there's there's many, but one for sure is like how you how you think about blame, right? That's a sort of glaring organization that is not open to learning. Right. If you're sort of like it, it's sort of retribution and like we found the person and like, you know, there's been yeah. tons of literature from the safety community, resilience, Dr. Woods, Decker, John Ospar, those people that we've absorbed well. So that's just one area. And there's so many more where these telltale signs that you, you're you just not a learning organization. If you know, if you if you don't understand, like you're getting into a postmortem and it's all about finding the blame or the root cause. And and then, you know, if you're not looking at at your pipeline as dispute, you know, I talked about the green, green, red. I mean, those reds are the, are the end on chords. They're the feed feedback loops that get, that you get to quicker. And we try to catch those earlier that we talked about shift lab. So I, again, I won't go through all of those, but you know, and we all on this call know this, that there are all those things that you can spot and you can, they all sort of add up to that's why I said in the last comment that it really sort of adds up that you're really not a learning organization.
1: So, so, going back to the quote um, that John gave as attribution, that same that same quote builds up to. Before I say you're building a learning organization or losing someone who is, I say you, you're building, you know, uh, you're building software. You're losing someone who is, and, and kind of like connects it back to this this digital thing. And in that in that same um, presentation, there's this um, research that I stumbled into. It, it's been you know what almost ten years ago now around the organization. So organizational learning, so dimensions of organizational learning. If you get into the literature, there's like this nuanced difference between um, learning organizations and organizational learning and and like, you know, some of that has to do with politics of academics or whatever, so it doesn't really matter for for our purposes. Um, But the the seven dimensions is a very interesting framing that gives you uh, ways to kind of explore on, on these different spectrum, you know, whether this is an organization that has a capacity for learning. And, and or, or the, to the extent that they're invested and some of it has to do with, you know, what percentage of, of your focus is on getting work done and versus like improving the way that you actually work, right? So you have to make investments. I think this is true, whether you're individual or, or you're or an organization, right? If you want to get better at playing a musical instrument, if you want to get better at, at playing chess or, or, you know, any of these other skills there, there's kind of like well-understood, um, process where you have to push the boundaries uh, of your comfort and skill level to be able to kind of get to the the, those higher level things and the reason I was so excited when I first stumbled into that and you know and this goes back to trying to help people with all these other tools and and Puppet and Agile and whatever DevOps like you could give the same organization or or what looked like very similar organizations in terms of size and scale and, and even business the same exact training the same exact tools and they would get very, very different outcomes. And, and in some cases, they would exceed what you thought was possible for them. And in other cases, um, they, they would come back and tell you that you know that your advice wasn't good or or it wasn't even you know useful. And and the difference what I what I came to kind of accept is that that learning capability, that ability to change, you know. And there's there's simpler models like the double loop learning or whatever. It's like how how willing are you to revisit your fundamental assumptions? so that you can can make new ones and test new ones. Um another book that's interesting um is from kind of the same like group of people Barry O'Reilly's Unlearned book, which I don't know if anyone's seen that. That that's a pretty good read that kind of frames some of this um in in the context of it, like in, in it's weird language because it's like you unlearn it's really learning like you but in in order to learn sometimes you have to be able to revisit some of your assumptions and a lot of us both as individuals and as organizations get fixated on a certain point, because in, in, in reality, what, what's happened is you, you won a game, like you sort of won a game with that behavior, but now Mm -hmm. the game is different. Like that, this, this, this is a point that I make pretty strong in the, in the um, talk that John's referencing. You, you, you have those behaviors ingrained because they actually got you something. They won you some game. It's just now that the game's changed. Can you keep up with the, the new rules?
0: Right, and 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 you know, and obviously, you know, as you as you transition, say from from one type of game to another game, or you know, one set of goals to another, right? You've got you know certain existing power structures or existing hierarchies. Those may not necessarily carry over. Like, do you guys find you know is there something that uh, or you know some set of patterns that sort of lend themselves to to being able to to transition from one to the other like for example like you know do, do you need sort of a crisis within your organization to be able to go yeah we can think about things differently or is it is it just you need a few really strong personalities i mean like what are some of the things that
2: I, I'm going to go jump, because I like the Simonson X stuff. I mean, surely crises create opportunities, no question about it, right. That that like, but but those are sort of latent in in their sort of discovery and and the the team the companies that have sort of better learning, better just overall structure in these sort of transformational attributes that we admire will do better. You know, the the COVID was example, right? Like, I did some studies on on some. I, I interviewed like 20 companies that were that what they did. But I do think I really like the Simon Sinek stuff, whether it's sort of intent based, but it's the why. And, you know, if you've read his book, you know, um, Start a Why or or that whole idea, whether you hate the book or like the, the idea that is that, like, if you figure out your why, then these are not, you know, sort of catastrophic changes. You know, the one example I love is if the railroad companies, you know, back, you know, 200 years ago or 100, 150 years ago, whatever, uh, would have seen themselves in the transportation business, they would have structured trucking. And so as highways came, but they sort of fell apart because they thought they were the railroads companies, the train companies. And he's got many examples. So I do think the companies that can figure out their true why are better enabled to deal with these sort of, you know, you know, um, those sort of dimensional changes. There's uh, I forget the, the Perez woman who has this incredible, um, I hate mentioning things when I can't remember what they are, but the Carlotto Perez right has this brilliant thing about these transformational divides that happen over the last couple hundred years, and and uh, and and I think the companies that are sort of understand their why fundamentally, look Apple, look at Apple, like they seem to just sort of roll with the, you know, because I think they have a better understanding of their why than than some companies that sort of fixed on we're a printing company or you know yeah. anyway.
1: So so I, I wanna I wanna extend that idea a little bit. And and there's there's what is the company's why? And and sometimes that why needs to change. Yes. And then there's and then there's to what extent does that company unify the why internally? So if you look at, at some of the struggles people have, you know, with the DevOps conversation and about delivering some of these outcomes, the 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 struggle is because you have these local personas, localized optima for dev. That's at odds with the localized optima for ops, and you know we we sort of um, expanded that with the conversation we've been having recently with some of Jabe stuff around the, the the kind of tension between innovation and efficiency. But what what you want to be able to do, and I, I think this is true whether you're talking about dev and ops or really about any team, you know, sports team, what have you, th- is everyone there for the same why? Is everyone there to build the same cathedral, if you will? So when you look at what happens. You know, everyone has a different why. Like, I have many whys. I have Mm -hmm. a wife, I have children, I have all these other interests. And then it's like you come to work, and, and when you're at work in the context of that organization, is everyone unifying their why? And I think that, you know, and most people have some experience with this, that there's a lot of kind of friction and heat that's burned off in a lot of organizations because they don't unify and there's a bunch of other issues one of the things i'm fond of saying recently is if you'll show me your org charts and your funding model i'll predict all your problems where mm-hmm. where where you have you know have these friction points so i think that getting those unified wise and that's a function of, of leadership that's a function of culture that's a function of these other things is really what allows companies to do special things and if you've ever been a part of a team that had that alignment then you'll always long for it if you don't
0: have it. Right, right. Well, and 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 unfortunately, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, they either look at it and they go, "Look, I, I you know, I, I can't impact the why, or like I can't change us from being a, a railroad company to a trucking company, or you know, I can't maybe necessarily change us from being a you know, uh, a pizza place to a home delivery, like, you know, there, there's some struggles with that. And and then there's times when, you know, that may last for four or five, like you said, you get into a great situation, it lasts for four or five years. I think that's sometimes the struggle I hear from people is they go, I, I, that's cool. I know what our why is, but how do I impact, like, how do I impact that?
2: But there always is why, right? Like, that's the thing I think most corporations lose, right? Is that that uh, like that when they s- can figure out like why they were created. You know, I one of the things I loved about Chef, and it, it isn't a good example when we're talking about billion-dollar corporations. But you know, one thing about Chef is you know Jesse Robbins was the CEO there, and he'd always say that we're sysadmins that are building a sysadmin tool for sysadmins, right? Like, and and you know, and that that was about the time I was reading Simon Sinek stuff. I'm like, oh my god, like this is you know, they always said Apple. Creates the or Etsy was a good example, but Apple is a good example. Like the the kind of products they create are the kind of products that the people who buy them. There's this like this um,
1: camaraderie and virtual virtual tribe that's great
2: yeah and i just think that some companies just lose that who you know these companies that started every one of these companies started somewhere you know ge is good ge has a why you know they may have a lot of problems uh, with ge digital and all that stuff that went on over the last few years but but like they talk about being the original entrepreneur thomas edison company right like you will any sort of executive who talks about ge will start with that sort of story like especially if they're in a startup domain or Eric Reese stuff they will talk like brag about we are the original
1: entrepreneurial organization and they've kept that so I want to key off one of the examples you just gave about how you know individuals don't feel like they can impact the the larger why um, and connect it back to the dimensions of organizational learning and we don't have time to go through the, the whole questionnaire but one of the one of the things that they ask is how to what extent can everyone participate in inquiry and dialogue regardless of their rank Mm -hmm. right if you if you don't have a mechanism for the lowest ranked people to provide inquiry and 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 feedback to the highest ranked people there's a a tendency to what i'll call green shifting where you know at, at the lowest level everything is on fire everyone knows everything is red but as it goes up the uh, the management chain, when it gets to the top level of management, everything's green, and, and, and so then you kind of like get in this cycle where where you're you're not actually optimized to be competitive, and everyone's sort of doing their thing. But for whatever reason, and it goes back to some of the things John was saying about blame, um, you know, they, they don't have that information at the at the leadership level to to make good decisions that would change those outcomes.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. You, you've got to give people at least some amount of, of belief that they they can be part of it. And they may not necessarily drive it completely themselves, but they can be a part of it and, and they see the transparency of it. Um, I mean, I,
1: I think belief is an
0: interesting word.
1: So beliefs part of it, but I, I think one way to make people believe it is actually do it.
2: Yeah, And, and, you know, you asked earlier about, like, what are some of the signs that somebody isn't learning or they stop learning or whatever? And to Andrew's point, it's that if you can, through conversation or discovery, find out that there is this sort of, you know, that sort of like, why are you talking now? You know, you've only been here a year. Like, you can evidence of there's that sort of culture, you know, to Andrew's point, whether it's dimensional learning or it's the psychological safety Um, research that google did uh, or any of the discussions around this this idea that like anybody an an organization should embrace inquiry at all costs from anybody diversity you know length of employment you know in fact the more you know i gotta say one quick side i hate it i always gotta tell stories i remember in the early days facebook in the devops days they'd show up and they'd give these presentations, and they talk about how their developers – and everybody in the early days developers would brag about how quick their developers could push to production, right? It was this sort of badge of honor. And I remember in one presentation, it was a large group, and Facebook talked about, you know, our developers pushed to production on the first day, and, and it was some enterprise person. they said, yeah, but what if they break the system? And the guy thought for a second, and he said, well – Actually, if they break the system, they're pretty darn smart. You're probably going to get promoted (laughs) because they've just outsmarted, you know, you know, 5,000 developers, you know? So anyway, it's that kind of attitude really that that creates sort of these optimum strategies
0: for success. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, Obviously, you know, both of you, while you spend a lot of your time, you know, thinking about these patterns, you've done a ton of research around it from a, you know, people culture perspective. You also have pretty deep backgrounds on the technology side of things, especially on the ops side of things. You, You know, as you're talking to, you know, colleagues, people in the industry about how ops has evolved now to be, you know, part of, you know, what people will call cloud native or these transformations, like, how has that changed? Like, what's, what are the things if, you know, if you kind of walk through somebody like kind of a checklist and you go, I want to do the equivalent of if you're a learning organization, but I want to look at it from kind of tech and ops and stuff. Like, what are some of those things that you sort of know right away, if they're doing something, they're doing it well, if they're not doing it, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to have a much bigger learning curve to, to make the software team successful.
2: I can. That- I was was going to tell the story that I learned from you, which was, you know, when I first met Luke and Andrew, they were telling me how, oh, John, you know, operations are going to start storing their stuff in in source control and they're going to act more like developers. And I had been like 15 years in like enterprise sysadmin. I'm like, you guys are out of your mind. That ain't going to happen. And it wasn't until I saw that presentation by Andrew that he was talking about. Uh, back at like it was, it was uh, O'Reilly in 2009, I think. And and um, and he, you know, I was like, Oh my god, I get what he's saying. Yes, ops does have to be like developers, and that's what DevOps is all about, you know. So it was really an epiphany that I got from Andrew. On like, I was old school, old school, and I just thought, You know, this is insane. These guys are out there, they're young kids that don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, uh,
1: so I kind of came into this narrative from the other side, like, I, I was a software developer or i was at least employed as a software developer in in some ways i i aspire to be a mathematician but that's a much longer or a scientist a much longer story Um, but you stumble into these things and you you do what you can so coming into it there's like these conversations that i used to get internally like i'd get really kind of frustrated and mad when you talk to someone and, and they would make comments like those monkeys in operations, or or like they they basically dehumanize the work and the contribution of this like whole class of, of people, and and part of it was you know related to how the the you know racking and stacking and there's actually like a physical aspect of it in, in so many of these contexts. But then when you get to the the current situation and, and what's going on with what we'll call cloud native, and, and then you know there's this other kind of buzzword du jour. Around SRE, which I, you know, I'll essentially, I believe that's sort of like the DevOps implementation at Google. Um, but the thing to fo- focus on that connects back to what John was saying is the E part—that there, there's the aspect of engineering, right? And so it's bringing engineering mindset and, and, and development yeah. to that thing. But it, but I would argue that this is the defining advantage of the true cloud natives is their operational excellence. So they're excellent in terms of their technology, they're excellent in terms of their process. It doesn't mean they're perfect, it doesn't mean that there's not um, problems left to solve, but it's really bringing that innovation mindset, that engineering mindset to the operational domain that gives you things like Kubernetes, right? So, So this is software managing these things. And then to the point of what ops looks like, So so I I give this presentation lately about cloud native operating models. And I talk about this this stratification from applications to platforms to like actual core infrastructure. And each one of those has an operational burden, right? So the software itself, the applications at the highest level have an operational burden. Then below them, you have the the platform, which is an application in its own right, which has an operational burden. And then at the very, very bottom you, you have infrastructure Which may have another abstraction, you know, infrastructure as a service, which is itself a platform, which is itself software, which needs to be operated. And then there very, very bottom, there's silicon and electricity and all that stuff. And and what's happening, and and when you talk, you know, and go back to the quote I already mentioned about Werner, when he says you build it, you run it, Werner's not talking about two pizza teams. Um, laying out their stuff in the data center, getting power and ping, installing operating systems. He He's talking about something that's predicated on all those layers already being in place, already being operated at a high level of reliability. So the team that is you build it, you run it. They're just running that top, top layer uh, of the, of the software stack. Right. And so what, what, what I argue or what I like to say is that operations moves up the stack. Right. So, all this value is created and commoditized at the bottom. The real kind of new new value is an innovation happens at the top and operations is just, is just tracking that same curve. So operations, I don't think ever goes away in the sense that you're always going to have an operational burden. Every application is going to have some operational aspect, but what those activities look like. Um, will change, right? And, and we're in the midst of some new models emerging when you start to think about serverless, when you start to think about edge, right? So, you know, and this is, this is relevant to some of the stuff going on with, with Red Hat right now is that you have this pretty well-defined to some degree, or at least, you know, people who've, who've seen and experienced that know what the DevOpsy SRE type operating models look like to have these sort of cloud central core services you know, the, the, the stuff you can copy from all the lessons learned building the big web. But when you start to get to the edge, when you start to get to devices, when you start to get to all these other types of things, those are those are emergent. There's not really some best practice that you can go copy off someone else because, you know, the the core services you, you can, but the, the rest of those models, we have to define as we go.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's it's it is it is this sort of constant evolution, and I think you know you you talk about it a lot. It's uh, while we're layering software on top of each other, there, there's also got to be the thing that. You know, the lower level things have to become more consistent, more automated, because you can't you can't keep layering sort of complexity on top of complexity. There's got to be points where, you know, things become automated, things become standardized. You don't you don't allow as many sort of nerd knobs and things to happen. And, and
1: uh... is one of the things I think the cloud natives were forced to do. Right. So it's a Darwinian aspect of it mm-hmm. is that the the human mind can only manage so much complexity. And organizationally, as you start to connect this together, you know, maybe we can manage more. But what all the cloud needs really did, and you know, this is sort of represented in when people talk about hyperscalers or hyperconversion or whatever, is, is they collapse the complexity towards the bottom of the stack. Right. So, so instead of having the lifecycle of an application tied to hardware where you're doing a PO for, per app, and then you have the lifecycle of that little unit in the rack for that application you're abstracting these things that are racks and racks, rows and rows of identical hardware with the infrastructure layer, you know, infrastructure service layer. And so then it's not that you don't have complexity from that added abstraction. It's that you, you get this, this level of consistency where you can spend your complexity budget at those higher order, higher level, um, you know, hopefully differentiate things. And you, and you see that come up the stack. So at the very, very bottom There's a lot of standardization, a lot of consolidation. Use abstractions to provide the the. And as you come up the stack, you have um, different runtimes and 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 maybe all the that's another thing that's interesting. Watching some of these um, conversations in in the enterprises, they're like, well, we want to enable the developers, we want to give them autonomy. If you go to if you go to Facebook or you go to Google, they don't let you run whatever whatever language you want. They don't, right? And and you know, Netflix had uh, you could you could basically do anything you wanted on the Java paths, and you could do anything you wanted, but then you had to go back through kind of a more um, traditional process and introduce those variations, because there is an ongoing you're you're adding an operational complexity and an operational burden every time you add a new runtime.
2: Right. Right. I mean. I mean, I learned this from Simon, you know, about, you know, when I first started working with Simon Wardley back when, you know, that, you know, what is it? The uh, componentization by Herbert Simon, right? Like, so to what we said earlier, right, there's sort of nothing really new here, you know? Um, but, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's nothing new, just faster processors, more bandwidth, and... Uh... And, and on-demand stuff. And a bunch well, guys,
2: of people can make sense of the complexity? Right? Exactly, so, yeah.
0: exactly. Guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up there. I know uh, you know people are listening. I, we we had a very very long list of topics. I knew we'd only get through a certain number of them. Um, you know, kind of as I think about this in summary, um, you know, the the kind of the big important takeaways. Uh, you know, learning organizations, right? Understanding where you are. Are you a learning organization? Do you have the capabilities to do it? You know, do you allow your people to to give feedback? Do you allow them to take part in the change? I think that was really important. You guys highlighted that. And and then obviously you know as you're you know you're implementing these things you know the importance of making sure that that those platform teams uh, that the operations the automation that goes with that is is kind of rock solid so like you said you know you can get into those mentalities of of you build it you run it or you can deliver self service so people can can go at the pace they want to um, you know last I'll give you guys the sort of the last word uh, and I'll and I'll hold you to the last word um, you know kind of if you're giving anybody a, a one minute tip, you're on an elevator, they're like, Hey, I'm, I gotta, I gotta kick off this transformation thing. You know, what, what is that one thing you're sort of like, just make sure you do this. You know, if, if you do nothing else, do this, anything you can, any tips for folks? You
1: want to go first?
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I guess I'd have to just go back to really try to understand that quote by Andrew and, and, and really embrace, you know, um, it, it, it just uh, you know, I mean, it, it, people yell at me all the time, but then yell at me, but like, oh, my God, in his presentation, he's now introduced four new books I got to read, right? Like, Sorry, <laughs> You know, I mean, and and I think there's just so much great material out there. And and, it'll, and do, you, do you allow your organization the bandwidth to learn, right? Like, I guess that's it. Like, give the, you know, if I'd be forced the elevator pitch, which I've already blown, but is like, give your people the ability, don't put them at 100% capacity, allow them, n- encourage them promote them and allow them the bandwidth to be learners, to let the organization become a learning organization.
0: Good stuff. Good stuff. Andrew, anything to add?
1: Yeah, related to that and, and kind of related to the narrative we're, we're building um, together at Red Hat is that there's a lot of these lessons that are already learned outside of your walls and, mm-hmm. and connect yourself to that greater learning. And then and then kind of to, to connect back to the points you made and John made Is that I feel like the more you can have a culture that is able to foster inquiry and and authentic critique, Mm -hmm. process that in a positive way, and then focus on making things more and more excellent, then you're going to get pretty good outcomes.
0: Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff, guys. Uh, I want to thank you for all the time today. I know usually I, I've got to travel a couple of thousand miles to go see you uh, talk somewhere, at one of the events. So I, I appreciate the time today, uh, folks. With that, I'm going to wrap it up for uh, for myself and, and Aaron, and, and obviously thank you to to both Andrew and John for their time today. Uh, you know where this is going to be sort of part two of uh, of the four looking ahead series for 2021 shows we're doing in January. I hope you enjoy them. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for giving the show feedback on on Apple Podcasts and. Other places and with that we will talk to you next week.
1: Thank you for listening to the cloudcast please visit the cloudcast.net to find more shows show notes videos and everything social media.